0: Chapter 3 Okay, here are the keys. His father handed the car keys to him reluctantly. Remember, give it plenty of gas when you're starting it, but don't flood it. The damn thing has been real hard to start lately. Carrie took the keys and flipped them into his shirt pocket. I'll be careful about it, he said. New shirt? Yeah. Carrie couldn't believe that his father would notice. It's sort of a rugby shirt. I got it at that shop at the mall. Well, his father looked him up and down probably with the same expression he had when examining a suspect in the lineup. Fancy new shirt. Clean jeans. Brushed your hair back to look like that movie star you think you look like. I'd say you have a heavy date tonight. Carrie blushed. He wasn't used to so much attention from his dad. It's a blind date, actually, he said uncomfortably. The new shirt itched. His stomach felt a little feathery. She'd have to be blind to go out with you, Sean broke in, and then he threw himself down on the couch laughing like a lunatic. He thought it was the funniest thing anyone had ever said. "'Is that the kind of jokes fourteen-year-olds are making these days?' Lt. Hart asked, removing his cap to scratch the top of his head, unable to contain the smile that spread across his face. "'Shut up, Sean,' Kerry called to his brother, who was still laughing like a hyena, slapping his knees and rolling around on the carpet. "Good night, Dad.' He walked out to the car, an 82 Blue Mustang, and lowered himself behind the wheel. He pulled the keys out of his shirt pocket and stuck the right one in the ignition. Then he took a deep breath. He knew his dad would be listening. If the car didn't start right away, he'd come tearing out of the house and Carrie would have to sit through another lecture on how to start the car without flooding it. He pressed down on the gas pedal once, twice. He turned the key. Come on, car. Come on. Start up. Let me get away from here. The car started right up. He could see his father standing in the doorway. A disappointed look on his face. Carefully, Carrie backed down the short drive, turned into Hillside Drive, and headed toward town. It was a clear, crisp autumn night. The air was cold and clean. There would probably be a frost later on. A good night for snuggling up at someone, he thought. Then he said her name aloud, Amanda. It was all wrong. It was too straight straight-laced, too old old-fashioned, two pioneer days on the old frontier, Amanda. He had only talked to her once but he knew she wasn't an Amanda. She was a Nadia. Maybe he would call her that. She'd probably think it was funny. At the bottom of the hill, Hillside Drive divided into two roads, one leading toward Newtown, where Paul Revere High was located, the other leading to the old section of the city, the original village. Amanda lived on Sycamore Street in the old village. Carrie remembered it as being one of the nicest streets in town, a broad street lined with stately old sycamore trees and even statelier old mansions. Maybe she's rich as well as sexy, he told himself. He tried to picture, for the ten-thousandth time, what she looked like. He had already decided on straight black hair flowing down below her waist, sort of a crystal-gale effect, but sexier. And he had decided on deep green eyes and a small heart-shaped mouth with dark, dark lipstick. And of course she was built like crazy. But would she be wearing a sweater to emphasize her fabulous body? Or would she come on more casual and demure in a blouse buttoned up to her chin and some sort of preppy long skirt? He couldn't decide. And, of course, she probably wouldn't want to go all the way with him until after the movie. But he could understand that. He liked the girl with some of the old-fashioned values. He and Josh had spent several hours discussing this blind date, the phone call, and every word she had said. They were in Josh's den, lying on the soft leather couches, gazing up at the ceiling. A Springsteen album was booming from the speakers recessed on either side of the bar. Josh made him repeat every part of the phone conversation at least six times. Then he would say, Man, she's hot. She is hot. Then he'd ask him to repeat a different part of the conversation. Since the entire talk had lasted about three minutes, there wasn't a whole lot to repeat, and Carrie found the conversation getting a little boring after the eighth go-round. If only Josh could think of something else to say besides, Man, she is hot. The fact that she was so hot was beginning to make Carrie a bit nervous. He had to admit he wasn't exactly Bert Reynolds. Suave and sophisticated weren't exactly the words that came to mind when people described him, even if he did look exactly like Ralph Macchio. True, he wasn't a complete nerd either. Like everything in his life, like everything about him, Carrie was sort of in between, not really one thing or the other. "'I got another call last night too,' Carrie said. He decided to tell Josh about the threatening, frightening call mainly to change the subject. He described the voice, the sing-song way of talking that had held such menace, and the repeated rhymes about bones. Oh, right, Josh said casually, getting up from the couch to change the compact disc on the stereo. That was me. Sure it was, Carrie said sarcastically. No, really, Josh insisted. Did I scare you? I did, didn't I? Come off it, Josh. I'm going to audition for a part in one of those slasher movies. I figure if I can scare you, I'm ready to try out. I really want that part. You get to slash 20 co-eds to pieces. It's cool. Kerry found himself getting really annoyed. Josh, someone is trying to frighten me and all you can do is make jokes. So I did scare you, Josh said, bulging his eyes and twisting his face to look like a mad fiend. All right. You want to come with me to help me buy a big butcher knife? Forget it, Carrie said disgustedly. Hey, how is Sal doing? Have you heard? You don't want to know, Josh said, turning serious at last. I heard he was still unconscious. The leg is a simple fracture, but the doctors are worried that he still isn't conscious. I felt terrible, Carrie said, and he really did. Now it was Saturday night, nearly eight o'clock, and he was feeling nervous, nervous and itchy. Turning onto Sycamore Street, perhaps the fanciest street in town, the old Mustang seemed nervous too. It choked and backfired and nearly stalled out. Cursing, he pressed the gas pedal down and the engine smoothed out. He slowed the car down to read the house numbers. Street lights on tall poles cast wide beams of white light through the trees onto the wide lawns, but it was still hard to find the address signs among the tall hedges and manicured shrubs. This neighborhood should look familiar, he thought. He had school friends who lived on Sycamore. He had visited in some of the immense old houses with their tennis courts, their pools, their room after room of antique furniture you weren't allowed to sit on or play near. But in the dark silence of a cool autumn night, it all looked different. The old houses, carefully shrouded behind tall evergreens and walls of hedges, took on an aura of mystery. Leaves fluttered in the pale light of the street lamps, casting moving shadows that made the smooth lawn seem to churn and bubble as if alive. It's definitely spooky, Carey told himself. At least up in the hills, the houses are close together, so you can always see some signs of life, people in the living rooms watching TV, lights. Here, only the shadows moved. But why was he thinking such weird thoughts? There was the house on the next corner. He was about to pick up Amanda. It's funny, the things you think about when you're nervous, he told himself. His throat felt suddenly dry. His new shirt still itched all down his back and around his neck. He checked the number on the small wooden address sign again. His foot hit the brake harder than he had intended when he saw the house. It was a mess. Even in the light from the street lamps, Carrie could see that the hedges were wild and poked out in all directions. The grass hadn't been mowed in months, tall weeds stretched up everywhere, and tree limbs cluttered the ground. A rotting wheelbarrow lay on its side near the driveway, which was cracked and rutted with patches of weeds growing up through the ruts. I guess the previous owners didn't leave it in very good condition for Amanda and her family, Carrie told himself. He looked up to the house, which was in no better shape than the grounds. Two white columns stood on either side of the front doorway, but even from the street, Carrie could see that the columns were chipped and cracking, with the paint peeling off. To the left of the columns, a screened-in porch had already been boarded up, even though the winter was still mild. Two of the windows on the ground floor appeared to be broken. Large strips of paper or tape had been used to cover the holes. Kerry parked on the street. As he turned the key and pulled it out from the ignition, he realized that his hands were cold and wet. He looked back up to the house. It was completely dark. They must be in back, he told himself. But wouldn't they leave a light on at the front entrance if they knew he was coming? Maybe they were having trouble with the electricity. Leaves crackled under his shoes as he walked up the driveway. A weed wrapped itself around his left leg and he had to stop to disentangle himself. There was no car in the driveway. The wide garage door to the right of the house was half open. It was too dark to see inside the garage. He walked quickly up the driveway and onto the stone path that led to the front entrance. Like everything else he saw, the path was cracked and crumbling. Vine-like weeds flourished in the cracks. He was out of breath when he reached the front stoop. He stood there for a moment, remembering Amanda's voice on the phone, catching his breath, looking back to the street at his car waiting beyond the overgrown, junk-strewn lawn. What does she look like? If she only looks half as good as her voice, wow! A dog barked across the street. Kerry jumped. He had become accustomed to the silence, to the sound of the rustling wind and the dry, scrabbling dance of leaves under shadows. He pressed the doorbell. He couldn't hear it ring inside the house. The dog barked again. Mind your own business, he called to it. He pressed the bell again. There were no sounds from inside the house. No sounds, no lights. He was standing in front of a large, empty wreck. Had someone played a joke on him? He walked to the edge of the front stoop and leaned forward as far as he could, trying to see in the window. Drapes were drawn. He caught himself regaining his balance just before toppling over the side of the stoop. Maybe he should go around the back. He pressed the doorbell again and kept his finger on it for at least half a minute. This is silly, a waste of time. There was no one in this house. No one lived here. From the looks of things, no one had lived here for more than a year. Carrie kicked the door in disgust. The best phone call of my life, he said angrily, and it's all a joke. Carrie turned and began to walk down the steps, and the front door slowly began to open. Two faces peered out at him. Carrie hurried back up onto the stoop, tripping over a step. One dim bulb in the hallway behind the couple at the door provided the only light. It was a man and a woman. They weren't old, but they held themselves like old people. The woman had solid gray hair tied back severely from her forehead in a small, tight bun. She wore a knitted shawl around her shoulders. She was carrying a teacup and saucer in one hand. The man had a bald, speckled head. He was stooped over so that his head appeared to emerge from his chest. He wore square, frameless glasses. He was dressed in a blue bathrobe, which covered striped pajamas. Carrie was so startled to see someone appear at the doorway that he just stared at them for several seconds. They didn't speak either. They stared back at him. Their expressions revealed their fear and surprise. Finally, Carrie regained his senses. Hi, is Amanda home? he asked. The man's eyes bulged behind square eyeglasses. What? Is Amanda home? I'm her date. The woman screamed and dropped her teacup. It shattered on the floor just inside the door. No, 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 she screamed, her eyes rolling up to the ceiling. The man didn't scream, but he seemed about to faint. He closed his eyes. His voice came out as a hoarse whisper, Amanda is dead. Chapter 4 Carrie wasn't sure he had heard right. Please? he said. Amanda is dead. The man was turning angry. What do you want with us? What sort of prank is this? Carrie couldn't speak. What sort of prank was it? Suddenly, the woman stopped screaming. She stared at Carrie and grabbed her husband with both hands. It's him, she cried. Look, it's him! They both seemed to recognize Carrie. What are you doing back here? The man bellowed, struggling to free himself from his wife's grip. Why did you come to torture us? No, no, no! The woman began screaming again. Kerry turned and leaped off the stoop. He ran across the front lawn, stumbling over tree limbs, pulling himself through thick clumps of overgrown weeds. He looked back over his shoulder. The man had come out onto the stoop. Was he coming after Kerry? Kerry reached into his trouser pocket as he ran and pulled out the car key. He had to get to the car. He had to get away from there. Gasping for breath, he reached the car and pulled open the door. He looked up to the house. The man had disappeared back inside. Was he calling the police? Had he gone to get a gun or something? Kerry jammed a key into the ignition. It wouldn't fit. Wrong key. He dropped the keys on the floor of the car, fumbled around for them, and retrieved them. This time he carefully found the correct key before pushing it into the ignition. He pumped the gas pedal once, twice. He turned the key. Let's go! Let's go! He said aloud, looking up to the house. There is no one on the stoop or in the doorway. The car sputtered and stalled. Come on! Come on! He turned the key again. Again, the engine tried, but failed. He pushed the gas pedal, then remembered he wasn't supposed to. He turned the key. Nothing. He had flooded it. Nothing to do but wait a few moments. But did he have a few moments? He listened for a police siren. He looked back up to the house. Nothing happening. The house. The house. There was a huge rec room in the basement. It had a ping pong table, a billiards table, and a jukebox. Knotty pine paneling on one wall. Wallpaper with red and yellow balloons on another wall. How did he know that? Had he really been here before? Did these horrified, sick-looking people really know him? Who used to play in that rec room? Why could he remember the wallpaper but not any faces, any people? Carrie felt a sudden urge of dizziness. It lasted only a second, just long enough to make him feel even worse, even more frightened. That hole in his memory, it was so wide. Was this house one of the missing pieces? Who was Amanda? Why was she dead? Why didn't he remember her? Did he ever know her? And the girl on the phone two nights before, had she sent him here as part of a cruel joke? Was she Amanda too? Or had his leaky memory played a horrible trick on him? He turned the key in the ignition and prayed. The car started right up. He put it into drive and floored the gas pedal. The tires squealed in protest as the car carried him away from the old house, past the silent sycamores bordering the street, past the hedges and the secrets that hid behind them. He drove aimlessly around town, then up into the hills, past his house, up to Johnson's Point, which overlooked the entire valley and all the towns beyond it. He stopped the car about a foot from the cliff edge and turned off the ignition. There was no one around. It started to rain, a few taps on the windshield at first, and then a steady shower. He turned off the headlights, scooted down into the seat, and stared at the water washing down the glass. A few minutes later, the rain stopped. He stared at the tiny droplets of water. Thousands of them that covered the windshield. Inside each droplet was a little reflection of moonlight. A thousand of little moons. It was a beautiful illusion. Was this blind date an illusion too? Had that girl with a sexy voice sent him back to an unwelcome place in his forgotten past? Could the girl on the phone have been a friend of Sharon's? Was she helping Sharon to get back at him for breaking Sal's leg? No. No, he told himself, and repeated it. No. No, no, no. He stared through the thousand tiny drops of light, and it all came very clear to him. He had played the trick on himself. He had guided himself to that old house, a place that played some kind of role in his misplaced past. He had taken himself up that familiar path to that familiar front door. The girl on the phone must have given him a different address. and may not have even been on Sycamore Street. He realized suddenly that he hadn't written down the address she had given him so hurriedly over the phone. Why hadn't he written it down? Well, for one thing, he was sitting in a dark room. But he felt no need to write down the address. His mind was determined to take him to the house where Amanda had lived. Amanda, was that the name of the girl who called him? He was no longer sure. Perhaps it was a name his memory had wanted him to hear. Carrie stared at the tiny water droplets. Suddenly, they looked like car headlights to him, a thousand car headlights all coming toward him. He felt a stab of fear, a tug of memory. Then the lights all blurred together. Carrie closed his eyes. He tried to hear her voice on the phone again, tried to recreate what she had said. Amanda. Amanda. Maybe she had said another name, and he had heard Amanda. Maybe she had said another address, and he had heard the address on Sycamore. Those pale, sick people who opened the door at the front of the house. They knew him, and they were terrified to see him again. He pulled himself up in the seat. Enough. This is too heavy, man. And, wait a minute. What about the blind date? What about Amanda or whatever her real name was? She had to be home wondering where the hell he was. He had stood her up. It's been nice spending time in the dark with you, she had said in that sexy teasing voice. And he had stood her up. What a dork. He started up the car and threw it into reverse. The tires slid in the mud from the rain, but he got it in control and got back onto the narrow road that wound down the hill. Maybe she had called wondering where he was. If not, how would he find her? He didn't have her number. He didn't have her address. He wasn't even sure he had her right name. It wasn't going to be easy. Oh, wait a minute. Of course it would be easy. He'd call Margot. Margo set up the blind date. He'd get all the info from Margot, Of course. Then all he'd have to do was call and explain why he had stood her up. And that wouldn't be so easy. But he could do it. He had to. For one thing, Josh would never let him live it down if he didn't. He pulled the car into the drive and ran into the house. All the lights are on, but no one seems to be around. Sean! Hey, Sean! The TV wasn't on. That meant Sean wasn't home. There were no phone messages for him on the pad by the phone. So, maybe she called and maybe she didn't. He'd have to call Margo. Did he have her new number? No. He'd have to call the information. The Fremont family, somewhere on the north side. No, I don't know the address. No. Yes, that's it. He started to push Margot's number, but then hesitated. It wasn't going to be so easy explaining to Margot what had happened. Uh, Margot, thanks for fixing me up with a blind date. Could you tell me her address and her phone number? And what's her name? I didn't catch it the first time I spoke to her. You see, I was supposed to pick her up at eight tonight, but I went somewhere else instead. Well, if he was ever really going to spend time in the dark with this girl, he'd just have to let Margot know what a jerk he was. He finished pushing her number. It rang once, twice, three times. He hung up after the eighth ring. There was no one home. As soon as he put down the receiver, the phone rang. He cleared his throat, then lifted the receiver to his ear. Hello? The ankle bones connected to the foot bone. The foot bones connected to the leg bone. The leg bone. The leg bone. The leg bone. The shrill nasal voice kept repeating the phrase over and over, growing louder each time, louder and angrier, until Carrie hung up. CHAPTER Five. He was startled awake by the ringing phone. He shook his head, tried to focus his eyes in the bright morning light that invaded his room through the dust-coated window. Despite the cheeriness of the sunlight, his first feeling of the day was dread. The phone had become his enemy, and now it was summoning him before he was even awake. "'Sean, get the phone!' he yelled. His voice still hoarse from sleep, but it rang and rang. He forced himself up from the tangled bedsheets, stubbed his toe against the leg of his counter, and grabbed the receiver. Hello? Is this Carrie? It was the blind date. He tried to shake the pain from his stubbed toe, but it continued to throb. This is Mandy. Where were you last night? Mandy. Her name is Mandy. Why had he changed it to Amanda? I got the wrong address or something, he said, fumbling for an answer, knowing that he sounded like an idiot. It's, uh, it's a long story. I'm really sorry. I felt terrible. I hope so, she said. Then she laughed. I waited for you till about ten. How could anyone sound so sexy so early in the morning? I tried to call you, he said, starting to wake up. I've never done that before, really. I mean, it's never happened to me before. I just... I thought maybe you had car trouble or something, she said. I'm real glad you called, he told her. I hope you're not angry. I... Of course I am, she said. I was looking forward to our day. After the big build-up Marco gave you, he could feel his face turning red. He was glad she couldn't see him. Compliments of any kind embarrassed him. He knew he wasn't anything special. With that purring voice, a compliment was almost more than he could bear. I'd like to make it up to you, he said, forcing himself to be bold. I'd like you to, she whispered. Wow. What's your address, anyway? Now that I'm not talking to you in the dark, maybe I'll get it straight. She giggled. It's 42 Sizemore, near the old depot. Sizemore, so close to Sycamore. But she must have said Sizemore over the phone that night. I'm sorry, Mandy, I just blew it, that's all, he said, still thinking about how he mixed up her name and her street. He shook his head as if trying to scatter the clouds that had fogged his memory. Let's start all over again. I mean, I like that, she said softly. I have an idea. I'm starting at Revere tomorrow morning. Maybe you could meet me before school and show me around. Sure, he said, a bit more enthusiastically than he intended. That's a great idea. I hope you don't think I'm being too aggressive, she said, suddenly changing her tone. No, no, I like it, he blurted out. He felt his face turning hot and red again. Why did he feel so stupid talking to her? No one had ever made him feel this uncomfortable. Just because I'm coming on to you doesn't mean I'm an aggressive female, she said. She laughed, so he laughed too. Some boys get turned off by that, she added. Uh... You don't turn me off, he said. What a master of understatement. That's the sweetest thing you ever said to me, she said. They laughed again. I don't think of myself as aggressive, she went on, but I don't always play by the rules either. What a fox! There was silence for a few seconds. He simply couldn't think of anything to say. He was completely awake now, that's for sure, and he wasn't even noticing that his stubbed toe was still scarlet and throbbing. He was only aware of her voice, her whisper, her laugh and how uncomfortable she was making him feel, and how he didn't mind feeling so uncomfortable. I have to get off, she said, breaking the silence. But before I go, tell me one thing about yourself. One thing. Think fast, Carrie. Man, he hated being put on the spot like this. One thing. Well, he cleared his throat. Some people tell me I look a lot like Ralph Macchio, you know, the guy in the movies. Silence. He could hear her steady breathing, but she didn't say anything. Uh, tell me one thing about yourself, he said, pleased with himself for thinking of it. Well, it was her turn to think fast. Well, I'm really turned on by guys who look like Ralph Macchio, she whispered. Bye. No, wait, he practically screamed into the phone. Mandy, tomorrow morning before class, how will I know you? Don't worry, she said. I know you. She hung up. He realized he was soaking wet from perspiration. He pulled off his pajama shirt and flung it onto the bed. He started to pull open the window to allow some cool air in, and the phone rang again. He smiled. She just can't leave me alone, he said. He grabbed the phone. Hi again. Dixon Stones will break your bones. Are you ready to die? Are you ready? The nasal, rasping voice screamed into his ear, then hung up before he could reply. Was it Sharon Spinner? The voice was too disguised, too distorted to tell. He put the receiver back on the phone, his hand shaking. Got to think about this calmly, he told himself. He thought about Sharon. She was always such a Miss Perfect, leader of the cheerleading squad, homecoming queen, treasurer of the student council. She was always dressed in style, not too showy but just right, preppy and neat. She didn't seem to have the personality of someone who could make such threatening phone calls. She didn't really have much of a personality at all, Carrie decided. She was just a nice girl, pretty in a typical sort of way, friendly but not terribly bright or interesting. But why had she threatened him in front of everyone? His mind flashed back to the chaotic scene on the practice field, with Sal lying on his back, his eyes closed, his legs stretched out at that weird angle, and Sharon kneeling over him, holding Sal's head in her hands, her cheerleading outfit all twisted, her hair flying all over her head. He saw her angry face, saw the fear and disbelief in her eyes. How could you? She had screamed to Carrie. You've ruined his life. How could you? And then later, in the back seat of the car, O'Brien was driving. She had stuck her head out the window. Carrie saw again the wild look on her face, remembered the hatred with which she had spit out her words. I'll pay you back, Carrie. I'll pay you back. It had to be Sharon, he decided. Her life had been so neat and ordinary, so typical, until he had accidentally changed it all. He had invaded her safe, normal life. Maybe it was the first time someone had done that to her, and now she was striking back, paying him back with these ugly phone calls. He picked up the phone. He had to talk to her. If she'd only let him explain what had really happened, he put the phone back. He decided to wait until he saw her in school. She'd never stay on the phone with him. Maybe if he could confront her, talk to her face to face, she'd listen. He showered and dressed without really paying any attention to what he was doing. Faces appeared and faded in his mind. Sal, his face twisted in pain, then Sharon again, replaced by the sad couple at the house on Sycamore Street. He tried to shut them out, to think about Mandy, but he didn't have a face for her didn't have an image to use to block out the faces he didn't want to see. He clumped down the steps, walked through the dark living room to the kitchen, and found his father at the table, reading the newspaper. Morning. Morning, Lieutenant Hart repeated without looking up. Where's Sean? Sean. His father peered over the top of the newspaper. You don't really expect to see Sean before noon on a Sunday, do you? Carrie looked up at the kitchen clock, a brass frying pan with black numerals around the bottom. It wasn't quite ten. I guess not, he said quietly. There's coffee on the stove, his father said. I'll just have some cereal. Kerry walked over to the cabinet and took down a bowl. Murdoch's still in a coma, his father said. Kerry drops the bowl. It clattered loudly on the countertop and dropped to the linoleum. How do you know? It's in the paper. Page one, his father said flatly. What? Kerry was annoyed that his father had chosen to be so matter-of-fact about this. Does it have my name? Does it say that I was the one who broke his leg? A long pause while his father finished what he was reading. No. My name isn't in it? Kerry fumbled around the floor for the ball, which kept evading his shaking hands. That's the least Stevens could do for you. Keep your name out of it. Donald was his best player, remember? Yeah, I remember, Dad, Kerry said disgustedly, slamming the ball on the counter. He practically tore the cabinet door off as he opened it to get the cereal box. I haven't even had breakfast yet, and he's talking about Donald, Kerry thought. Want to see the article? His dad asked, folding the paper to hand it to him. No, Kerry said angrily, more angrily than he had intended. I was there, remember? Don't yell at me, his father said, rubbing his eyes with the back of his hands. You're angry at yourself, not at me. Just read me the headline, Kerry said, spilling cornflakes on the floor. What does it say? What does it say? Superstar quarterback ruined for life by bumbling idiot who should be murdered? Yeah, something like that, his father said, actually grinning. Hey, don't tell me. I made you laugh, Kerry said in surprise. What do you want me to do, cry? His father replied, quickly changing the mood back to grim. That was such a typical move by his father, Kerry thought. If a tiny human emotion happened to creep out, quick, cover it up. He had decided he had won a small victory anyway. He had actually made the old man smile, something he hadn't done in a long, long while. What about the headline? Kerry asked, searching through the refrigerator for the milk carton. He finally saw it over on the sink where his father had left it. Read it yourself. I gotta get going, Lieutenant Hart said. He shoved the paper across the small kitchen table to Kerry. Kerry shrugged and picked it up. At least it's on the bottom of the page, he said. That's good, his father said. Always look on the bright side. The headline read, Revere quarterback in coma after breaking leg. Then a smaller headline read, Season over before it begins for Panthers. Kerry crumpled up the paper and tossed it down on the table. His father finished the last drop of coffee in his mug and pushed himself up from the table. You know, Donald would probably have. He caught himself. He realized what he was doing. He stopped short. He pretended to cough. What? Kerry asked testily, urging him on. Go ahead. Finish that sentence, Dad, he thought. Let's hear it. Let's hear what my fabulous brother would have done. Nothing, his father said, wiping his mouth with an already stained napkin. I gotta go in this morning. Some idiots broke into the granary last night. stole two dozen sacks of grain. Can you imagine? What? What? Kerry stared at his father. He hadn't heard a word. Hey, can I ask you something? It's sort of about the law. His father put on his police cap, working to arrange it in just the right spot on his head. Sure. Hey, how was your date last night? Uh, fine. Great, Carrie said, blushing. Listen, don't let your punk brother sleep all day, okay? Yeah, sure, Dad. But I'm going out. Josh and I are going to play a little one-on-one at the basketball courts behind school. Try not to break his leg, Lieutenant Hart said. He grinned again. Sorry. Us cops have a sick sense of humor, I guess. It comes with the badge. Dad, my question. Shoot. Is it against the law? I mean... Is it a crime to make weird phone calls? You know, call someone up and say weird things to them and threaten them? You mean, make obscene threats? No, not obscene, really, just threatening. Sure, it's a crime, Lieutenant Hart said, giving Carrie the once-over. Who are you planning to call? Get serious, Carrie said. It's this, uh, friend of mine. Someone keeps calling him and saying weird things to him. Do you think the police would— Oh, a friend of yours, Lieutenant Hart said. So it's just a teenage prank. Some kid with nothing better to do, huh? No, the police wouldn't take that seriously. Kids do that all the time. Listen, be sure to wake Sean up before you go, okay? Yeah, okay, Dad. See you later. Lieutenant Hart was out the door before Carrie finished talking. Carrie smiled. That was the best conversation he had had with the old man in over a year. He gulped down his cornflakes, then quickly washed the bowl out in the sink. Just a teenage prank. His dad was right. He had to cool it. He had to stop letting the phone calls get to him like that. Sharon, or whoever it was, would get tired of it before long. Sure, it was upsetting, but what harm did it do, really? Just a teenage prank. Kerry felt a little better. He grabbed his jacket and was out the door and halfway to the bus stop when he remembered he'd forgotten to wake up Sean. Lucky Sean, he thought, turning around and slowly walking back up the hill toward the house. The guy spends all his time vegging out, not a care in the world. He doesn't even seem to care about Donald being gone. Or if he does, he sure knows how to hide it. He walked through the kitchen and living room and stopped at the foot of the stairs. Hey, Sean! Sean, wake up, okay? He yelled. Silence. Sean! I know you can hear me. Wake up! It's Christmas! Come down and see your toys! "Uh Uh-uh, came the sleepy reply. In your face, Josh cried, leaping over Kerry toward the basket, pushing the ball down to the hoop for a slam dunk. The ball missed the hoop, missed the backboard, missed everything, and bounced away across the empty court. Nice shot, Ace, Kerry yelled, chasing after the ball, which had rolled all the way to the tall metal fence. You're as good at round ball as you are with a football. At least I'm still on the team, Josh said. He grinned and crossed his eyes. Only Josh could get away with a line like that, Kerry thought, but he still heaved the ball as hard as he could at Josh's stomach. Josh dodged away, hitting the asphalt, and the ball soared over him. Nice pass, he said. Kerry pulled a handkerchief out of his jeans pocket and wiped the sweat off his forehead. The basketball courts behind the school had to be the hottest place in the entire town. For some reason, the sun always beat down with a vengeance here, even when it was cool everywhere else, and the soft asphalt reflected up the heat. Kerry didn't mind. It felt good to move and sweat. It was a beautiful, clear day. So clear you could see all the way to the top of the hills from the basketball court. One of those summer days that come in the middle of autumn and lull you into thinking that the winter cold will never arrive. He and Josh played hard, and terribly. You're supposed to hit the front of the backboard, not the back, he told Josh at one point. Now he tells me, was Josh's reply. They didn't talk much. The only sounds were the bouncing of the ball against the asphalt, the soft clip of their sneakers as they ran and scuffled, and the cries of some freshmen who had a game going on the far court. Here comes Dr. J, Josh yelled giving Kerry a body fake to the right and leaping left, sailing out to the basket and forgetting to let go of the ball. He came down with the ball cradled in his arm, shrugged, and then froze. Hey, Hart, I almost forgot. You're blind, Dave. He let the ball roll away and slapped himself on the forehead. What about it? How is she? How could I forget? How could you forget? Come on, man, spill. Kerry knew this moment was coming. He was surprised it had taken Josh so long to remember to ask about it. He went after the ball, scooped it up with one hand, and began dribbling around Josh. Come on, Hart. How'd you make out? Forgive the pun. The date was postponed, Carrie said. He tried to look mysterious. It wasn't going to be easy to pull this off, but he really didn't want to get into it with Josh. There was no way he wanted to tell him about the wrong address, the wrong name, and the couple that were so horrified to see him. Carrie was certain that Josh knew something about, about the tragedy of the previous year. Most likely Josh knew a lot more about it than Kerry did, since the entire year is nothing but a gap, a blank spot in Kerry's memory, but they never talked about it. Josh understood that it was something Kerry had to work out himself in his own time. The fact that Josh never mentioned anything about Donald or what had happened was one of the reasons the two of them have been able to remain close friends. Kerry knew he wouldn't feel comfortable with anyone who wanted to talk about all the things he didn't remember, or who wanted to help him remember. Postponed? You dork! You chickened out!" No, I didn't, Kerry protested, continuing to dribble in wider and wider circles around his friend. It was postponed. Tell me another one, Josh made a stab at the ball and missed. I'm meeting her before school tomorrow morning to show her around, Kerry said. And you didn't go out with her last night, even though every word she said cried out, Kerry, I'm hot for your bod. We just didn't get it together, Kerry replied, which was totally true. He pumped and set up a layup. It hit the side of the hoop and ricocheted off. That's the whole story. Josh still couldn't believe it. Kerry didn't blame him, but he'd just have to believe it. That was all he was going to get. Josh started to dribble the ball, got his legs tangled, and fell on top of it. Hey, I think I'm starting to get the hang of this game, he said. So she's starting at Revere tomorrow. Yep, Kerry said, helping Josh up. We had a long talk this morning. Did you mention me? Of course not. Why would I mention you, Kerry said. Why do you do anything, Josh replied. I can't believe you had a date all set up with this girl and you. He was interrupted by a boy's voice at the far end of the court, yelling, There he is! Kerry and Josh looked up to see four guys running toward them. As they came closer, Kerry realized that all four of them were wearing yellow and black Panther sweatshirts. The guy in the lead was carrying a football under one arm. Hey, Bugner, Josh yelled. O'Brien thought you guys would be home reading the paper on Sunday morning. What happened? Did the funnies confuse you?" Along with Bugner and O'Brien, Kerry recognized Malick and Henderson, all from the football team. Kerry felt his stomach knot up and his heart begin to pound. All four of them were running right toward him, determined and ugly looks on their faces.